You sound good. I hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sweet. Do you hear my fan running? I do not. Okay, good. Because I'm burning up. <laughs> well, let's just roll from here. I, let me do the pre-roll. Hiring is challenging, especially with everything you have to consider today. But there's one place where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is ZipRecruiter. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay. This, this episode's also brought to you by Marriage Supply, the nastiest, filthiest, <laughs> sexiest place. No, it's not. It's just, you know, something kind of nice for maybe some married folks that just want to dip their toe in a dildo or a vibrator <laughs> or something. You know, just not go too crazy. Just, just, just a little, uh, it's Friday night. You know, something like that. Mary Supply is where you find all that stuff, and uh, and it's good. No, no porn on that site uh, for all you folks that don't like that. And uh, yeah, MarySupply.com. Very good. What's up, everybody? What's, What's going up, on, Ryan? Ryan? Hi. Good evening. Good evening to nice you. Nice to meet you. It's, uh, I don't know if you've met Mary Beth before, but this is Mary Beth McCauley. Hi, she, Mary Beth. She is uh, in the BC Hi. Club. She's been in the BC Club a long time. And she's been hanging on the podcast. She's developing her own podcast called Fabulous, Awkward, and Bra I'm sorry. I always say Fabulous, Awkward, and Brave because I'll, it's- We I'll, abbreviate it to Fab. fab. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny, it's awkward, awkward, and Brave. It hasn't yeah. even launched yet, and but Fab is the thing. So she hangs out with us and we podcast and do stuff like that. So um, you're somebody who we've had on, on you know, a couple times and enjoy talking to. So we figured we'd hang out tonight and just all chat would be a good format. I love chatting. Mm -hmm. So well, we got we got a hot topic coming. So get ready. Bring we're, not, it. we're not going back to that topic. We we had a pre conversation that we're not even going to revisit. But um, I'll hang. I'm I'm cool wherever, man. I mean, embrace the awkwardness. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. That that's true. Um, but you have, they're asking the girl with pink hair about the gays. Yeah, so we were, that oh, gets you as far as you think it will. About the gay. I like the term the gays. My favorite kind of gays, by the way, are Southern gays. I love like the Southern mm. gay affect. I think it's the best thing ever. Ever. Oh, that's me. I love that. I'm a Southern gay. We weren't really I talking about gays, though. We were, talking, we were talking about super straights. There's yeah. a super straight. That's movie. true, actually. Yeah. There's a, so, supposedly, there's a, the, the difference. But, there's a yeah. subreddit called Super Straight. I just saw a post from it today. Yeah, I, I'm really surprised how yeah. much it's caught on. It was all over TikTok. Like they have a flag, I think, or some kind of symbol. Yeah, it's fucking black and orange, yeah, yeah. according to yeah, yeah. Urban Dictionary. <laughs> yeah. So is it a troll sexuality then? 
I think that's what I think something like that, right? But I mean, is that just is it a form of trolling? Is what I'm asking. I think it's a way to put people on the spot and make them feel uncomfortable about like, for instance, if you don't say, if you say, I don't want to date a trans person that makes you, that makes you super straight is at least the post that I saw, uh-huh, which right. makes you think a lot about like gender yeah. and sexuality and things like that. You know, I mean, I don't know the answer, but it just, I was like, well, that's interesting. Never thought of it that way before. Yeah. This is another one of those things. I think everything has to have a very extreme label. So for example, if you do something racist, you are now a racist as opposed to you have done something racist and you are prejudiced, you know, bias, all that stuff. So it's like, even though I, f- I do believe that that's a transphobic thought, at the same time, I think <clears throat> it's it's another one of those things where you may not be a like transphobic as a whole, but it kind of just makes you <laughs> an asshole. Like if you do something racist, that makes you an asshole. And I think this, it's like, I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. That's just kind of how I feel about it. Like, yeah, I think it's for sure being shitty to post stuff like, I mean, it's, I don't know. To me, it strikes me as a troll thing. It's just people acting, you know, like animals or something. It's like they're, they can act out in that way in those circumstances. Like at, if you're mm-hmm. in a, if you're on a wildlife preserve and you could look at every population that way. Here we see the Christian perched upon the rock. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to do the British. Yeah. What is that? Planet Earth. Planet Earth. Here yeah. we see the mighty Southern Baptist. <laughs> Ryan, are you Southern Baptist? I grew up Southern Baptist, um, but now I'm a I'm a dirty liberal American Baptist who okay. uh, just American has, Baptist. We have female pastors, and um, some churches are a- a- affirming. Um, so we are uh, we are heretics, according to my Southern Baptist friends. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can't find a single one of those anywhere near me. That's why I don't go to church right now. Because you can't find American Baptist. <laughs> you can't find a modern well, and a, an right? affirming church. Right. I should uh, say. I see. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's I, I say that I said that on the Holy Post podcast. Like, if you live in rural America and you're liberal, there's no church for you, especially if you're white. And people lost their minds. You're like, you're full of crap. Like, stop overgeneralizing. I'm like, I am not <laughs> overgeneralizing. Like, you think no. I have data, people? Like, I'm not just talking out my butt right now. Like, I do this yeah. for a career. And of the top 25 largest predominantly white denominations in America, 21 of them are more Republican today than they were 10 years ago. Wow. Um, the, the the only, like, there's only like three or four tradition, white traditions in America, Christian traditions that are what you would call even left of center. And most of them are one or 2% of the population when Southern Baptists are eight or 10%, right? So these are like, most towns don't even have like an Episcopal church, for instance, and if they do, it's like 30 people and they're all 85 and older. Like, wow. There's no yeah. options. Like literally in my town I live in right now, we have an Episcopal church. It closed down because they couldn't find a priest. There is no church that I would call left. There's no affirming church, Protestant church in my community of 15,000 people, not a single one. Yeah. Wow. And that's, mm-hmm. that's endemic across rural America. I would yeah. most communities in most counties in America, I would say the number of affirming churches is one or zero in 90% of them. And people who live on the coast, especially mm-hmm. don't understand that to be yeah. Christian in rural America is to be conservative. There's no, there, there's no other option. And if you are affirming, you'll be chastised by everyone else. You'll be, you know, like I, if our church was affirming, I probably couldn't go to the ministerial Alliance meetings. I couldn't get other churches to work with us on projects. 
Like that's just like how how much it's been endemic of GOP white Christianity. They're the same thing now, and and it's really you know it's it's excised a lot of people. Yeah. You know, a lot of young people especially they want to be Christian. They just don't have an option. That's crazy to think about. You when know. you say Republican mm-hmm. and and Christianity mm-hmm. is synonymous, what's the numbers there? Is it like like uh, how many Democrats yeah. go to church? <laughs> I, I figured it was a lot. I thought it was a lot, but maybe, I mean, no. Um, so if you think like if we count the religious left, right, it's people who go to church weekly and identify as liberal. Like if that's our definition of religious left, yeah, it's about six percent of America is is the religious left. Okay. So. You know, the religious right is at yeah. least three times that size, yeah. probably between 20 and 25 percent. Like that there's like I there are people I follow on Twitter, like the religious left is a thing. I'm like, nope, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and they, but the thing is, they live like on the they live in the belt. Where they at though? But, like, yeah, but like they live in the Excel corridor, right? Between like Washington, DC and Boston. I'm like, yeah, you might have some white liberals up there. Come to rural Illinois and try to find some. Like they don't exist in a meaningful yeah. way in most yeah. of the country. So the religious left is basically a creation of the, me- I hate to say this, the media creates the religious left because they want to have a narrative. Like I would say like there has to be a counterbalance to the force, right? For Darth Vader, you have to have Luke Skywalker. There is no other, there's no counterbalance when it comes to white Christianity. It's all one thing. Like, so even like, okay, so amongst Protestants, there's evangelicals and there's mainline. We're mainline, Southern Baptists are evangelicals, okay? Here's the thing. The United Methodist Church is the largest mainline tradition. Over half of all mainline Protestants are United Methodists, and 55% of United Methodists are Republicans. So like, where is your liberalism there? Like I'm yeah. saying, like, there's, no, there's no big, there's no counterbalance to the Southern Baptist Convention. N- nowhere yeah. close. And then you add in the non-denominational evangelicals on top of that, you could add every liberal denomination together and it would be a third of just those two denominations together. Like there's no, there's no mm-hmm. balance in the force. It's all one thing now. That The other way to put that is the town uh, Toby and I grew up in, Toby was the evangelical church of God. And I went to the ultra, ultra liberal, fruity, non-Christian yeah. Presbyterian headed church. To hell. Those Presbyterians. Yeah, the, 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 the Presbyterians, hell. the liquor store Presbyterians that oh, talk God, to you yeah. and play golf oh, that were yeah. going to hell. Unbelievable. That yeah. could never care about God from the Had point real of view. wine at communion. Yeah, a real <laughs> liberal like people, of course. Now, though, you know that I'm sure all, all those people are conservatives. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Just like I'm, the, everybody at that church is largely conservative, and then maybe there's a few liberal people that actually do go to that church because they so much want to be a part of the community of God, and they care about the God stuff so much, they're willing to go to that church, which, of course, all, is very conservative itself. Like, not the church teachings or whatever, but those people, they just like to go to the church where they don't really hang you up for stuff. You can just You're more free. Like, you don't get in trouble for everything. They're still conservatives. They just don't like to get in trouble for drinking and partying. So yeah. I call so they that, just go to the Presbyterian church. So my big, so I'm right. I have another book contract already for book number two. But book number three is going to be called The Death of Polite Christianity in the Future of America. And it's going to be about those kind of churches going away. Like, I call them like country club Christians. We're like, yeah, I don't really care. You can be gay or trans <laughs> or smoke weed or whatever you want to do. Just keep my taxes low and get the government out of my life. Like that's the kind of Republican they are like old school Republican. 
Like those don't exist anymore. And, yeah. you know, the main line used to be that. You see full of people right. who are like, yeah, this Jesus thing, like, am I going to hell? I don't know. I don't know if hell exists. Angels, demons, resurrection. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's where I grew up is kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those kind of churches were great. They were 30% of America in 1976. 30% wow. of Americans were those people. And now it's 10%. Gosh. One in five Americans have disappeared from that tradition. And I wow. think there's actually data that shows this. Like that was what held America together for a long time. And there's actually a book that just came out called um, Why White Christians Stop, Stop Loving Their Neighbors, The End of Empathy is the title of the book, where basically the, John Compton argues Donald Trump is a direct result of the fact the mainline collapsed because the mainline would come in and say, we can't nominate Donald Trump. He's crazy. Like, let's get us a country club candidate. Yeah. All those institutions crumbled. What are you left with? Oh, right? yeah, that makes sense. The Southern Baptists have nothing. Non-denominationals have even less than they do. So there was no one at the top saying, we're better than this. Like, this is not who we are. And so it was all bottom up. And listen, the mob is, is crazy. And so the mob took over and got us Donald Trump. So I think the collapse of the main line is something that is completely understudied, under understood. And people don't realize that Christianity not used to not be, America used to not be so religiously polarized where it was evangelicals on one side. The nuns on the other side used to be 55% of Americans were not evangelical and not none, right? So moderate Christians, basically 55%. Today, it's 35%, right? 41% of Americans are evangelicals now and about 25% are nuns. There's hardly anything left in the middle anymore. Yeah, That's the problem is Christianity became everything. Evangelicalism ate all religion, all religion, not just Protestant Christianity, by the way, there's born again Catholics. Now I even did a piece on born again Muslims last week. They're a real thing. They're conservative politically and go to mosque more than once a week. Half of half of Muslims who go to mosque more than once a week and are Republicans identify as born again or evangelical on surveys, 50% because they realize in America to be Republican and to be devout, whatever devoutness that is, means to be an evangelical. So the word actually means something more than what your preacher told you when you were a kid. It's a cultural thing and a social and a political wow. thing now, more than it's a religious thing. That's really, really crazy. So it'd be a, it's a terrible time to be looking for a job in the mainline church. I mean, I you know, if I tell you what, finding great candidates to hire anywhere can be a real pain. Yeah, you're but right. Try, you know, it's going to be like finding a needle in a haystack, but let me tell you about ZipRecruiter. Well, that, that's what I was getting ready to say. Yeah, because there's... ZipRecruiter will help you as much as God will, probably yeah, getting that job right. at the mainline. Tell them about it, Matt. <laughs> if you're a mainline church first, looking folks. to hire... You might want to think about ZipRecruiter. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes strolling on in, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. When you put a, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply you get quality candidates fast. So whether so, while other services overwhelm you with applications to sift through, ZipRecruiter finds what you're looking for, the needle in the haystack. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post there get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. ZipRecruiter. 
the best way to hire, the smartest way to hire. Okay. Now, Ryan, I wanted to talk about your book. You mentioned that your next book, which I don't totally want to move on for that, but I just want to pinpoint a big yeah. congratulations to you because you. your your book is out uh, yesterday when this comes yeah, out, no, but tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow from here. Yeah, but yesterday yes. when they hear the episode, we're taping on Monday, but this yeah. is your book release eve as we're taping this episode, right? Yeah, it's exciting. Tomorrow, first book in the wild. It's crazy. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I know uh, some of our people are big fans of yours from the times you've been on here before, so I hope they will check it out. But um, tell us about the whole, like, what's it like for you, in, you know, on a personal level, getting a book out, like th getting this book out? How many pages? It's, uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, this has been, like, this has been the weirdest, because I'm on sabbatical right now. I'm on teaching sabbatical, so I'm not actually going to campus. I haven't been on campus since before Thanksgiving. So it's like, I'm not even like doing my job. Really, It feels so weird. Like my full-time job, I'm not actually doing it that much because I'm supposed to be doing book promo. Um, but the other thing is about book promo is I'm an academic. Like we didn't take PR classes. Like most academics sell like 200 copies of their <laughs> book and like, or I get a, get a $30 royalty check once a year and are stoked about it. But like, I'm in, in a different world now because like this is, this is like a trade book. So this book's actually supposed to sell like real copies, not like 300 copies, but like, in you know, <laughs> And so what's trade book mean? So trade means like it's written for a general audience, not for an academic audience. Mm -hmm. Right. So academic publishing is a whole different world. This is where books cost $90, a hundred dollars. And the only people that buy them are your libraries, you know, like they're, they don't like, you don't go to Barnes and Noble and see it on the shelf, like academic books. Cause mm -hmm. they're just not written for you. Yeah. This book is written for the average audience. I've never been trained on like how to do any of this in terms of promotion or selling or reaching out to, you know, my contacts in like the media world and like what's appropriate and what's not, you know, so like getting blurbs was a huge pain. I had no idea how to do that. So it's really been like a lot of like awkward lessons about, can you help me sell my book? And, you know, like, please tell me what to do. So I will say this, the people who, who are in my orbit have been so great. And I've sold enough books already that my publisher's already given me a contract for the second book. That's great. So, so yeah, um, I, I feel like I, I'm stumbling through life. Like I'm Forrest Gump. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. Like I'm just stumbling from one thing to the next, but I, it keeps happening well for me. And I don't know why, but um, so the book's first book, they actually renegotiated my first contract um, and make it better for me. And then gave me another contract for book number two, which is going to come out hopefully next year. So I, I don't know, man, it's been crazy. It's been so cool, but it's also really nervous too. Cause when you write the book, you send it off. It's like, that's it. Like I forgot to talk about this or I didn't do a good enough job with that. Or they're really going to rip me on this. And my academic friends are really going to give me a hard time. Cause I don't cite this and that and the other thing, but I don't cite anything because it's not for them. It's for the other audience. So mm -hmm. you can, like, you go through bursts of like, I'm really proud of myself to I'm a terrible person and I'm an idiot. And why'd I do this? Like all in the same hour. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's great. Well, you have a, a, a knack for making things catchy or palatable and just with your Twitter and the way you see data and then figure out how to visualize it and package it up and send it out with a message or a claim. That's really helpful to me. That helps me get into more data that you do that. And then as you figure out the publicity and the public side of that, um, hopefully it'll grow organically. Who are the people, though, that you look up to or model that, are, that have made the transition that you seek to do? I'm curious who you're... You know. So there's not been many to be, to be honest with you. This is a very small world of academics who like are true academics, but also jumped the fence and became trade publishers. Like the biggest one in our field is a guy named Robert Putnam. 
who wrote a book called Bowling Alone that came out like 20 years ago called The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Um, and that book sold like New York Times bestseller level, but he's like a Harvard guy, you know, and that book was also like 500 pages. So that's not my jam. But honest to God, there's no like someone I am trying to emulate by doing this because my entire career, I've never felt like a real academic, as oddly as that sounds growing up as, you know, like coming up as an academic, being trained as an academic. I've always felt out of place because I don't want to write for journals. I don't want to write, I don't want to do an academic book that 300 people read. I want the people in my church at home to read my book and go, I really enjoyed that. I learned something from it. I really go out and do public talks, right? I really go to seminars and workshops and teach people about the data. Whenever I write an article that's even peer reviewed, I'm always thinking, how can I make this into a blog post or a tweet or, you know, whatever it is to make it more palatable to the general audience? Because my big thing is why do work that no one reads except like 12 people in that little religion and politics subfield? I want hundreds, if not thousands of people to read this stuff and their lives be better. Like, I like that moment. Like you said, Matt, like when you see what I'm doing and go, wow, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like that, that world doesn't, I, I didn't understand it that way. But now when you show me the data, like it makes sense, like where I am in the world and why I feel the way I do. That to me is more satisfaction than getting peer reviewed pubs and tenure and all that stuff. I'd rather do that. But you know what's terrible about it, though, is the only reason I do is because I know you and trust you, thus let you do that to me. Does that make <laughs> sense? So, And that's a real <laughs> challenge. That's a real challenge because, I mean, when there's just people showing up with data and it's like, <laughs> that's like a big, that's really hard to just, I don't allow data in. I gate yeah. it. You know what I mean? I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sensitive, data sensitive. So mm -hmm. I have to, you know, the calibration of who you're trusting and letting in is is getting harder and harder to do so you it seems that that you have to be able to build a rapport and a context and a reputation just mm -hmm. to uh, just to because you can't print facts and books with the claims of this and that it's just like it's people are yeah. pretty allergic to that i think that the key for me is and this is actually i think sort of impeded my growth in some ways like on social but actually helped me in other ways is that i'm a, i try to be a neutral referee which means i try to give it to everybody you know, like I'll give, I give atheists a hard time. I give evangelicals a hard time. I give the mainline a hard time, even though I'm a mainline Protestant myself. Like I want everyone to like be criticized by me at the end of the day. And I'm conscious about like, I've been making too many graphs that are negative towards evangelicals. I need to stop that. Like I need to write a piece about how evangelicals are altruistic or have better mental health or whatever it is, as a way to sort of balance what I'm doing. And then what's funny is some groups are really good about taking criticism and other groups are really bad mm -hmm. about taking criticism. And what's funny is, and people don't believe me when I say this, I swear this is true. Evangelicals take criticism better than almost any religious group I've seen on social. I think they know their faults. Like, <laughs> they're failing. That is shocking to me. It, it, it really is. But I think it's also Twitter evangelical is not real evangelical, you know, like mainstream evangelical. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, but I think, you know who takes it the worst though? And they're going to kill me for saying this. The Like the atheists on Twitter are the worst. Oh my gosh. Like, uh, oversensitive or what? Yes. If I criticize them for anything, they lose their ever loving minds. Like not true. I like, think anyone on Twitter is the worst. It's just the nature of Twitter. It really is. Like uh, Twitter's it, it's the reason I have a career is because of Twitter, but man, I hate it. Like there's so many things mm -hmm. that change about it. Like the anonymous accounts on Twitter make it 10 times worse. And it would be a lot oh, better. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Cause what happened to me, it feels so asymmetric. Like I'm out there, my name's on my account, my emails on my account, me, that's me. My picture's on my account. It's a guy with a cat picture calling me an idiot and saying, I have so, you know, like whatever bias it is. And I can't attack him because he's a freaking cat that like, he can yeah. hide <laughs> and, and I'm out there. You know what I mean? Like I'm here, like mm -hmm. I'm exposed, right. you know, like, and he can right. say whatever 
once with zero ramifications. And if I trip up and say something mean to him, then I get canceled, right? Yeah. Or I'm, I'm, I'm blocked on Twitter or whatever for saying one thing stupid when this guy can literally hurl grenades 12 times a day for a year straight and nothing bad happens to him. That's how I felt talking to Mary Beth at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, that's that's the thing about social that kills me though is like the anonymity. You know what I mean? Like it, being anonymous gives people like yeah. more courage than they should have in the real world, and it makes I do think it makes Twitter worse, like demonstrably worse. Having those alt accounts or those burner accounts makes it worse. I've gotten brigaded before. Like I literally had to turn off like notifications on my Twitter because somebody who has like 14,000 followers, again, anonymous account pointed all his followers at me for pointing out a scale that's called racial resentment that they didn't like. And now they're all calling me a racist or looking at my CV saying, I don't deserve tenure. I'm an idiot. How did I become an academic? How can you be a pastor? Like literally the worst things you can possibly imagine. Just ding, 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 ding. Twitter actually sent me a notification. You're getting a lot of notifications right now. You want to turn some of those off? And I'm like, uh-huh. I mean, it got like hard. Yikes. All these people suffer no ramifications for doing that while my mental health suffers. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing that this is where we've gotten. I mean, I love social. I love Twitter, but man, there is a dark, dark side to social media that I think the companies could do a better job of reining in. They just want to, they want the counts to go up and the, you know, and the followers and the, and the actives and stuff. So they don't worry about it. And I do think it makes it worse for everybody on there, especially like me, who's public, you know? Well, I think piling on someone too is like popular. Like it, it gets more views, right? Like if you see, even if you don't know the person, somebody doesn't know you, Ryan, but they just see people starting to sh just go after you and say all this stuff. They're like, oh, I'll, I'll follow this or whatever. Now, I also have to say this. I have a fake account on Twitter. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but I just use it to troll my friends. Only my well, friends. I don't go on, I don't go and... Like I'll just sometimes say something funny to see okay. if, see if one of my friends plot twist. Is Toby is the guy calling yeah. you a racist. Yeah. <laughs> Toby leads the brigade. It's, it's been Toby the whole time. <laughs> Thank you, Toby. Gotcha. I appreciate that. It, this is the big reveal. Gotcha, Ryan. What's it's that just hilarious? a picture of Norm now. You've been pumped. Yeah. Norm as the creature comes picture. out. Trucker hat. Here we go. <laughs> Toby got you again. You got zapped. <laughs> you got zapped. No, but I will say Twitter is great though. I mean, it really like it. I don't. I have a career. Like David French retweeted me today. David French is a big. That's great. Part Deal. You know, yeah. like, so like I'm getting bigger circles, like David Brooks, the New York times follows me, like some big time reporters from big time outlets follow me and email me and ask me questions and stuff. And how that it's also democratized stuff because I went to, I, I went to a little SIU Carbondale. That's a terrible school. I teach at EIU, which is, I like the school, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Like I didn't go to Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, right. I'm in the middle of nowhere with before Twitter, the New York times would have never found me. Right. Never. Right. Mm -hmm. But so it's democratized. It's basically let the cream rise. And, you know, I obviously see myself as rising. <laughs> right. <But> like <laughs> I, I had a talent that I knew that I could use this platform to elevate. And I'm very, very thankful for that. It's just there's listen, every you know, everything good has a bad. And there's some and the bigger you get on social, the more bad that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So it's really this weird. Right. Well, let me ask one question here, though. Yep. Is it is it at all real? Like what actually, ha like if, when you turn off your notifications, if those, mm -hmm. the, the folks that are going after you, they can say whatever they want to say and mm -hmm. whatever it is. But yep. if, if you turn off your notifications and don't respond, it just goes away, doesn't it? Like, I mean, unless you yeah. did something worthy of, you know, losing your job or can being condemned. Like if, if people called you out for the right reasons, but if people yep. are just shitting on you and they can't really prove it, but they're just shitting on you on Twitter, I mm -hmm. think it just goes away if you just go, I'm just not going to listen to that. 
But am yeah. I wrong on that? Yeah. No, the, you, you've, you've hit on something. I tell a lot of people who like, I've become like some sort of like weird, like pad. I'm like a Jedi teaching on pad ones. Like what happens when you get popular on Twitter and how to deal with it. Yeah. And, and one <laughs> of the things like I tell like young academics who are like gaining a following is you don't have to respond to anyone. Like literally no, yeah. one you have to respond to you more often than not, you're going to get, you're going to be better off by not responding than by, by responding, especially in the moment. So mm-hmm. if you're going to respond, wait 10 minutes and then see if you still want to and think about it really well before you actually hit that tweet button. Yeah. More often than not, you're going to dig the hole deeper. And I've dug a couple holes for myself. And the only reason I got out of them was because I saw, you know, I saw my hole <laughs> getting deeper. I said, oh, shovel's going down now. I'm going to go outside. Like, I'm done with this. Like, <laughs> right. I done messed up and I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it worse. And I think a lot of people, that's a, that's a lesson that's hard learned because academics are prideful people and we want to be right. You know, like we don't want to like give up in a fight. Especially like, work hard to be right. <laughs> yeah. But it's like academics, you don't understand. Like we are so prideful of our theories and our, you know, our methods and our data and all this stuff. Like we're taught to like be combative. Like that's the way you get through academia. Then you go on Twitter and realize you're arguing with a guy who has a cat picture and you can't, right. you can't it's not the same thing. So you got to put those weapons down and say, this is a different battlefield. I've got to fight this battle in a different way. And more often than not, oh, it's putting man walk away i have to just red alert though right away to the the circumstances of that because it really freaks me out because now i mean i so you're a public figure and it just reminds me of pastor i mean you're a pastor also but i'm just Mm -hmm. saying in these areas what it feels like the right there with what you're saying you you've said now this is a different audience than my other Mm -hmm. audience Mm-hmm. And all of the stuff we're talking about right now means you have to be very careful and protect your reputation and not let anybody mm-hmm. know anything bad about you that they could hurt you with. Yep. And I go, oh, shit, I've heard that before, you know? So, like, I hope you see that as the you are in the reputation management game oh. that is so destructive and it's so razor thin and it's so important. And you can, um, you can even articulate the reason why mm-hmm. you have to separate those people from you those Twitter people that are not academic and now you have a different category for them and you're the public figure. And so managing your reputation is everything. And it's like your whole career hangs on it. And then like, like Toby talking about those notifications really disturbing you. That's Mm -hmm. dangerous, isn't it? Like, aren't you doing something very dangerous? So I think about this too much, you know, about like who I am and what I am and things like that. I will say this. I don't feel like I have to be personal, personal on Twitter because I stand up in front of, you know, 20 people every Sunday and spill my guts. Right. And like, that's where I get to like, get that out. And these people know me and love me because I've been their pastor for 14 years and they see me grow up from 23 to 38, you know, like, so they've been there for the ride. They know me and they trust me and I trust them. I I've come to understand that like, this sounds so stupid, but like, you got to have a brand on social and I have a brand and my brand, the way I avoid a lot of that, that stuff on social is being ruthlessly empirical, trying to be as neutral as I possibly can be mm-hmm. and only respond when I feel like I can add to the conversation, right? I don't, like, I have a lot of academic friends who like tweet about like what they're eating for breakfast and like how they feel about Trump or whatever. That ain't my brand, you know? And part of me says like, listen, there are a thousand political scientists who rail on Trump every day on Twitter. What am I to add to that? You know, like how do I, I'm not moving the needle at all. Let them do that work. I. I would, I would bias my other work by doing that. And so I want to be seen as a neutral arbiter. And if I rail against Trump or rail against Biden, 
I have sort of biased my work. And now a certain segment of my, the people who follow me won't, you know, as you said, Matt, you don't trust data. If I come out and be extra partisan and just like hammer on one party or another, you're not going to trust my data because I am being partisan. Right. That's not who I am. You know, like that's not my brand to use air quotes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But the trick of, I mean, the pastors have always had a problem separating their, their brand from the person. That's mm -hmm. always the hard part. Listen, my brand as a pastor is I pastor 15 old women. <laughs> like, like there's no, I got no, I got no ego when it comes to that stuff, man. Like our church is, you know, like I, I feel like I'm a hospice pastor, you know, like our church is going to close in the next couple of years. And the, the church I was at before this already closed. So I have no ego when it comes to church stuff because I realize, and this is what the, to, to go back to the book, right? In the book, I talk about how so many pastors, and I felt the same way when I was growing up. If I preach really well and I do good outreach and I do, you know, do all these really charismatic things, my church is going to grow. Because, you know, John Wesley said, if you set yourself on fire, people will come to watch you burn. And I try to do that. I try to preach great sermons. I would practice the whole week to preach a great sermon. And the same 30 people would show up every Sunday. And what I finally realized as a social scientist is, listen, there's macro level stuff that's happening in America that no matter how good you are, you can't hold that back. You can't push the, the 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 wave of secularization back in America. It's rolling over the whole continent right now, and nothing that I do can hold that back. Hmm. And so that's really helped me put my ego in check, right? My job is to do the best that I can with the congregation that I have in the circumstances that I'm in. And if God grows us to a thousand, or if we close down in five years, I still gave it my all, and that's all that I can do. So. It, what's interesting, we're talking about data, and uh, it, we really do. I think last time you were on, we were talking about this um, too, but just the idea of like when I realized that data isn't important to everybody else because I never cared about data. I'm a big loudmouth, emotional person that just would argue from heart, not head, right? Mm -hmm. But now I'm starting to go, you know, especially with COVID, like it'd be nice to have some really good data. Like, I mean, we just feel, Matt, I think you and I were talking about it the other day, still don't feel really great about data as far as COVID goes or anything like that. And what we are seeing now more and more is that I, I don't know if people care about data anymore. I don't know if it's just like the, they don't even, the, the truth is, is just so subjective now. Like it, it's really hard to, even with data now, say this is the truth yeah. about something, and, you know, whatever uh, we're and, studying or whatever we're talking about. That's the hardest part of my job, though, is to say, like, take off your political lens, right? Take off your ideological perspective, your, even your theological perspective sometimes, and understand a couple things, right? First, COVID is deadly, much more deadly than the flu. There's absolutely no evidence that says that the flu is more deadly than COVID. Zero, none, zilch. That's, there's no evidence of that at all. Secondly, masks do work. There's tons of evidence to say that masks do work. But, and this is the hard thing for people to understand, COVID is more deadly than the flu, especially if you're old, old. If you're young, it's actually, you're, there's a almost zero chance of you dying from COVID. Now, I know you're going to be like, well, I know someone, I saw someone on social media right. die from COVID at 32. Listen, anecdotes are not data, okay? Just because you heard of one person, you know, like I've heard of two people dying from the vaccine. You know how many doses of vaccine we've given out in this country? Right. Over 60 million Americans have gotten at least one dose. If two people died, that means you have a one in 30 million chance of dying from the vaccine when you have a, a one in 200 chance of dying from COVID. So do the math. Like right, right, right. It's way safer. But the problem is that people don't want to hear that, right? They don't want to like look at the data because here's the problem. Americans, human beings in general are bad at math and they're really bad at probability. 
like really insanely bad at it. Like one in 30 million is an insanely low probability, but you know, people would say, well, I'm going to be that one. No, yeah, you right. won't. I got <laughs> like, bad you know luck. You know yeah. me. <laughs> exactly. I got bad luck. It's going to happen. If you don't believe me, go to Vegas. I got the roulette with the, we got that little board, that little ticker board that has like all the numbers that have popped up on the roulette wheel where it's, you know, red, there's red numbers and there's black numbers. Half the numbers are red, half the numbers are black. And if you see like five black numbers come up in a row, you got a bunch of idiots rolling off the table go, we're going to bet on red because yeah. red do. No, it's not. <laughs> it's just you, your chances of hitting red that next time are 50-50, just like they were the next time and the next time and the next time. But people are bad at math, right? So when we start talking mathematically to people, you got to understand that most people have no baseline in probability theory. So you can't even like you got in the news, like Brian Williams is not going to like walk you through probability theory on the nightly news. So you're automatically working at a disadvantage. And so when we talk about numbers like this, it's really hard to, for people to perceive what small, really small numbers mean. And it's really hard for me as a social scientist to say this matters. And here's why it matters, especially in 280 characters and one graph on Twitter, because no one hangs with you on that. Yeah, I think the front end of that, like you said, is is the weirdest part about it is that you say they're bad at math, but yeah. that's kind of, kind of, there's another way, another angle you can look at. It. Instead of you need training before you can look at data, I, I mm-hmm. think that there's a other way to look at it, which is you have to get people to try to understand something first before they decide. And that really, that part of it is saying everybody's always trying to tell themselves a story of something. So they're already, by the time they encounter a set of numbers, they're already in a narrative. Mm-hmm. So before you look at data, the, the skill more than learning math is unhooking yourself from narr- a narrative that you are in. You can take mm-hmm. a second and go, okay, drop the back. Like you, you can, that's an active skill that you don't have to be good at math to do. And then some, I mean, people are actually pretty good at knowing simple probability. They really can do it if they're open to it. But getting that open mindset to look at something, unhooking yourself from the story part is what people just really are too mm-hmm. busy, afraid, nervous what they'll find. Like all those feelings prevent you. And then basically when you start hearing data, it's just tune it out. It's just, too, it's just. Yeah, blur- I'd say emotions overtake yeah. logic and knowledge yeah. a lot of the time. How many times sure. have you heard this though? How like they keep changing the guidance on COVID? Like you've heard that, right? Like yeah. why does yeah. CDC make up their mind about how to protect us from COVID? Guess what? You the problem is people don't understand how science, how messy <laughs> science is. They only see the in the end product of it. Mm-hmm. They don't see the back and forth that happens for decades sometimes to arrive at conclusions about the scientific world. Yeah. But now it's all but on hyper display because we're all focused on COVID. Right. So what we're seeing is actually science happening in real time in front of us. And so we'll see one finding that says that masks don't work. And then another one that says that they do work. And then one that says kids can transmit. And the one that says kids can transmit. Guess what? That's how science works. Like it's a process you learn over time. And you know what? We might get to the point where it says 80% of studies say that kids can't transmit, but 20% say they can. Does that mean that kids can transmit? Yes, but the overwhelming, the preponderance of the evidence says it's pretty safe. Right. And that's where we've gotten to over time. If you saw 12 studies that all said the same thing, I'd be worried, okay? Because what happens in science, mm-hmm. typically you get, you know, eight or nine that say it's positive, two that say it's negative, and two that say it might be either positive or negative. That's what good science is because if it's all one direction, I start thinking people are cooking the books, but unfortunately the public goes, oh my God, how can they not know? Because it's yeah. science and it's hard. So 
a lot of it is, I also think it's just, it's motivated reasoning, but it's also scientific illiteracy that most people don't see how the sausage is made. They just distrust the sausage from mm-hmm. the very beginning. You know, I think and, that 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 even yeah. goes to all like the same thing with uh like uh global warming or whatever we're calling it these days climate change. Um, I think that there's been so much back and forth on it, like you said, with scientists going back, or maybe not so much, but there's been enough of a potential for debate that people were able to debate it in a sense in their own minds without real data on it. You know what I mean? Like that they just go, well, you know, what are they talking about? That uh, they said the polar bears. We're dying, but guess what? They're not dying. So I'm going to go with that one because that, that's my bias, right? Yep. Yeah. You know, the, that's yeah, crazy. Better. But yeah, but think about this. There's an entire movement going on in America today amongst Republicans to make it harder to vote in this country. Literally state by state. In Georgia, they're trying to make it illegal to vote on Sundays, on most Sundays. Souls to the polls is a big thing in the black community. They're trying to make that illegal in the state of Georgia. The state of Michigan, the legislature of Michigan made it a misdemeanor crime for you to pay someone to drive someone else to the polls on election day. So if you paid for your brother's Uber to go to the poll, you committed a misdemeanor, $1,000 fine, 30 days in jail. And that's new. But the court struck it down. A federal judge struck it down saying it's a violation of the Constitution, which it is, by the way. But there's literally a party in America that's sole goal is to make it harder for you to exercise your right to vote based on a premise by the way, that is completely flawed. And that premise is that there's massive voter fraud in this country. That is mm-hmm. fundamentally, empirically, numerically a lie. Okay. And, and I don't know, like newscasters like try to hedge on that. Like there's very little evidence. There's almost no evidence of voter fraud in this country. That's a numerical, empirical wow. fact. Were the you pro- losing your mind when all that was happening? Oh my gosh. I just, my head, it's like you created a a solution to a problem that does not exist. Like, think about that for a second. So Donald Trump fed his electorate a lie, a flat out, bald face, completely fabricated lie, which is the election was stolen. Then now they're using that as a basis to try to restrict your ability to vote, especially amongst people who will not vote for the Republican Party. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I cannot be nonpartisan in situations like this. I cannot support a party whose goal it is to make it harder to vote in this country, especially amongst black and brown and poor people in this country. We should make it easier to vote. If political science teaches us anything, it's it's too darn hard to vote in America. And Republicans sit there and go, no, 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 it's too mm-hmm. easy. Like, it's just mind-blowingly stupid. Yeah. Do you and think it, we it, could go yeah. digital? I mean, I, like yeah. at the beginning of this mm-hmm. year, they were acting like, what if we have to because the pandemic? And you could feel for a second, it's like, wait, maybe we could, but it always seemed like, well, you can't. But now, can't Maybe we? the blockchain will set that up. Is there something? something? I mean, there are ways other countries have gone to an all digital voting system. There are ways to safeguard it where you can go online and check your vote with a code they would give you to ensure that your vote matched what was in the database. Now, Americans don't trust that stuff. But, you know, like the thing like Utah has been doing mail-in voting now for 10 years. Oregon's been doing it for 20 years without any. And Utah, by the way, the liberal bastion of Utah has no problem with mail, all mail-in voting. So, like, how did it become a problem all of a sudden? It's, it's, it's so insidious. And I don't want to get into a debate about policy, about taxation or, you know, trans rights or gr- the Green New Deal or whatever. I have a hard time supporting a party that's abject goal is to not make their, their electorate bigger. It's to make the other side smaller. To me, yeah. that's 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 yeah. not just wrong. That's immoral, and I think it's unchristian. Yeah, if we went digital, it would just yep. it would uh, advantage one over the other based on their data. They already know what it would be. Do you know what it'd be? 
So it would disadvantage poor people because they don't have internet access. I mean, we still think even what we've seen with mm-hmm. COVID, like sign up online, old people don't have online, like they can't sign up. It actually will probably disadvantage old white Republicans if you're going to be dead honest. Yeah. But then you have you have little dry people like going to the old folks home with computers, like tablets, like here, vote on this right. tablet. Here, I'll show you how, yeah. which you know, also problematic. I am in favor of paper trail voting, even today, even in the 21st century, whether it become mail in, all mail-in voting. I think all states should have no excuse mail-in voting. I just think that's that's an easy move we can make right now. And you can still go vote on election day if you'd like, but if you want to vote through the mail, go right ahead. There's no evidence that it's any less secure than voting at the booth on election day. So with yeah. Trump, it, it really was, I mean, that's what I assumed. I just figured, even, first time I even heard it, I was like, I just don't see this election fraud just because it seems too wide scale like it that doesn't even make that just doesn't make uh, maybe in a a county possibly there could be mm-hmm. some fraud but even that wouldn't swing the election so trump literally did just completely flat out lie to try to did or did he believe it maybe i mean what i mean did he just think i'll buy some more time or i'll set myself up for the next thing or something but it, i mean obviously he didn't he must have not really i mean there had to be people talking in his ears going no way and now what the my pillow guy's getting sued or something. <laughs> my pillow. We live. We live in a time where my pillow's getting sued for causing, for saying something, uh, telling a lie about uh, whatever the voting company is. So, so there was CPAC was last weekend, which is like this big, really conservative conference happens in Florida every year. This right wing media company got the rights to broadcast it online. They actually had to cut away at one point and read a disclaimer saying, we do not agree with the views expressed by these speakers on the stage right now because they were trying to, you know, talk bad about Dominion voting systems. Oh, wow. They were going to get sued, right? So, you know what the best defense against libel is? The truth. That will defend you every, you cannot be sued and win for libel if you're telling the truth. So, if Dominion was actually altering the votes and people said that, then why don't they say, you know what, go ahead with the lawsuit because we're telling the truth the whole time. No, right. they're backing down and they had to read these like statements of like, oh, we're so really sorry. We didn't mean this. You know why? It's because they're lying. I mean, Tucker Carlson got sued and his own network said his work is not factual. It's work of satire and exaggeration in the lawsuit. His lawyer said that he's a liar in the lawsuit. And that was the defense they used in a court of law. That tells you what's going on in America. Like, yeah. lie, we can lie, but it's entertainment, and that's okay. As long as in courts we say, oh, it was all – we're just making stuff up to entertain people. Like, that that's is so really, – That's really um, – I mean, we intentionally have gotten to two places. One where Twitter is, like we were discussing earlier, a dangerous – game to play where there you take risks and there are rewards for it and mm-hmm. then also we've we've chosen to go to this place um i mean i'm like this too i like this about my media and entertainment i need the boundaries to be blurry mm-hmm. so i i get off on that and so does everybody else you want to just almost know or not be exactly this nobody wants to look at the spreadsheet of course so we're all looking for a little bit of interplay between what I know or what I know satire or what's the inside look at or what does the newscaster know that we know but they don't know I mean all those things are present and 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 we're p- humans are getting more and more skilled at using these layers and long context to let you know what I mean or whatever and certainly Tucker Carlson's playing a game 
uh, you know, a dangerous game kind of a thing. Like he's, he th he's, and then even in his own mind, he doesn't know what's performance art and what's not. And is you'll never be able to pin it down. And th that seems to make the most engaging entertainment when we're playing with those boundaries. And some people kind of don't know and some people kind of do. And maybe the guy that's saying it doesn't even know, but maybe he does. Like we kind of like that territory. <laughs> I don't know how Tucker like deals with himself. Though, not either. I'll preach. This happens probably once every couple of years. I'll say something from the pulpit I don't believe. And I have a clutch moment in my, like my soul kind of like folds in on itself. Like, oh my, like you're an idiot. Walk that back. You know what I mean? Like, don't say what you don't believe. But I say it to 30 old people. This dude says it to like 3 million people a night. He certainly seared himself and, and, and has hardened himself in a way that he's able to get to that place. It's like a, a perform, he's a performer in a way where he's really must have had to internalize the art form that he is engaging. I mean, there's an art form. I mean, he's it. an actor, right? You know, like, it's, it's yes. a blurry method acty. It's not, it's based in reality and things he does think though. And it, he could back it up. It's just a matter of how soft and how hard. And then when you have to put it down in legal language, you have to use words like satire, you have to say lie. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah. Even in the lead, it's hard to pin down. I mean, it's great. I mean, we love this blurry, mixed, augmented reality. And now, I mean, that's the that's what we like. The news seems just like reality TV, planned. You know, kind of set up. The Bachelor knows that the uh, you know, Bachelorette's going to be over here, and they that's how they got into. The, it's all that setup stuff. I feel like the news is the exact same. I think on all sides. Whenever I watch news. I don't really it's believe mostly it. entertainment, right? I don't. I don't believe if there's any. If it comes close to any kind of opinion, I just go. I'm not. I'm gone because it just doesn't. It like I. That yeah. is not what I need or want. Yeah. Or it, it feels like it just blur. It, it blurs it to me to where I don't think it's any kind of truth. Which is, but the the deeper thing there is Tucker mm -hmm. Car Carlson figured out a way to speak to people and they really received it. That's what weirds me out about it, right? Mm -hmm. He has like the most the highest rated. Uh, number of views of any news TV show ever. Like what? Mm -hmm. It was one episode of uh, I don't know a couple months ago, but it. So the most people that ever watched a news show watched his because he could speak in some way that that directly got to them, people that loved him, and the people that hated him. You know, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just his fans watching that. No, it's hate watch. Yeah, I hate watch. I hate watch Fox News sometimes. Yeah. Just to like see like, yep. but what's scary to me is you see people on social media who watch Tucker that amplify his messaging on mm. social media. Like you're seeing it right now with the stimulus package, which by the way, 70% of Americans like the stimulus package. Okay. It's incredibly popular. So what do Republicans do? They say things like yeah. the Boston bomber is going to get a stimulus check. <laughs> that's, that's, but that's just, I mean, yeah. they're just, I you saw know. that. Yeah, that, that's you know what? He got the other two stimulus checks too when Trump signed both of them, right? So like, yeah. you know, yeah. like you just trot it out when it's convenient and people are like, it's a blue state bailout. Do you realize Texas is getting $20 billion out of a blue state bailout? Yeah. Turn into a blue state, yeah. all of a sudden I just didn't realize it? But that, that's the thing is like, we'll take something and like they sit in a room and go, what's the spin? What's our angle on it, right? Like how do we mm -hmm. make this into a talking point? Yeah. The truth is irrelevant. It's just what plays on social is what plays. And they don't care if it's disconnected from reality, and that's actually better in some ways. They, no, they don't care. They don't care, but you yeah. you <laughs> care. You come from the opposite side. You come from information, and now you're mm -hmm. thinking, I got to be more entertaining so people can take my information. And they're saying, well, we know how to entertain people. What do they like? Well, 
scary shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. So news is better yeah. than The Bachelor. I mean, if you're trying to entertain people. It's, well, I wouldn't go that far. But. You know? like, But what I'm saying is, <laughs> it's like those are the two most entertaining things, basically. Just like at the lowest level, that's the easiest way to have the most people resonate on a wavelength. Her or her. Uh, the killer's coming to get us. The bad guys yeah. and the other bad guys. Have you that, seen the movie Nightcrawler? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what that makes me think of exactly because you game. it demonstrates in real time. Yeah, exactly. All of the thought that goes into what's going to get us the highest ratings. It doesn't matter if it's true or factual in the slightest. Yeah, it, but it, but you can. I mean, you can demoralize. You can back off the morals a little bit and see it for what it is. I'm and just be not judgmental, and then you can put the judgmental back on. But it's like if you're a band or something, you know that it, you know Ozzy knows his brand is to, to do this to do the wildest thing that he can. That's a little bit funny, but it's the he's self aware of the oldness, but it's the darkness. It's a little cartoony. Like he's picked that, and now in any moment that comes to him, he must deliver that. That's not so bad. You gotta, Matt, you've got to, you know what I've been watching, binge watching? The Osborne season one, I just finished. That show from 2002, yeah. you guys, that reality show from back yeah. in the day. That was one of the, that show was awesome. You know why? It was one of the first reality shows, so they didn't produce it. They just shot tons and tons of footage and just threw a bunch of clips together that were funny. Like, mm -hmm. you know, reality shows are so like polished and produced yeah. and they're storyboarded yeah. and stuff now. Like we talked about like how reality shows aren't even real anymore. They were real back in those days. And like that authenticity won't play. But that's anymore. only because of Ozzy though. Like, you can't do that with anybody else. He knows how to do. He is in his but, character mm -hmm. and he knows what its rules are. Donald Trump yep. does too. So, yep. I mean, you can, uh, so does Fox News or Tucker Carlson or the, uh, the liberal media, whatever. They know yep. what their game is and they know who their character is and how it interacts with their, the people that worship, if you want to put it in that, those terms. Mm -hmm. They have worshipers, a, a, a preacher knows how to talk where he talks like this and you say the thing. They just know what, and then it's what, I'm going to fill in the blanks this week with whatever we're saying about this stuff. It's a pattern. It's a, it's a charisma. It's a, it's these characters that intersect with these large audiences and then, Whatever has to go in the materials, just gas in like it. The the mm -hmm. it's a formation, and you can look at it non judgmentally. Like Ozzy, it's cool that he's like that. I mean, you like that. It's just I love but, it. But what you're doing is a uh, having information that you think yeah. is important, and that non storied information is valuable to people, but they don't want it. So now you had to start making compromises to be entertaining. <laughs> No, there are sometimes I'm like, where you go? I know, but I but here's what I do sometimes. I go, this tweet's gonna be fire because it's gonna make people mad. You know what I mean? Like it's all but you like, get I, addicted to that. Yeah. Oh, you like I, you know, like I'll have bad days on Twitter where I won't get a lot of like juju. You know what I mean? Not a lot of likes, not a lot of retweets, not a lot of whatever. I'm like, well, let's dig in the bag. You know, like let's dig up immigration <laughs> racism. Or Here we go. You know, like but that's so toxic. Right. Yeah, fight that mm -hmm. earth. No, but what will you do when the when there are best practices <clears throat> and algorithms that say you need to piss off X number of your fans to reach X by X margin, and you need a hot? I mean, th there could be data that we could pull out that would show us the be perfect way to behave to grain your following larger towards your end goal that I'm sure is good. But yep. you have to do a little of this, and you got to do a little of that, and you got to redo this, and you got to pick a fight with somebody in your field, and blah blah yeah. blah. Yeah, I mean, no, if you I had a feud with somebody with this. Nate Silver, wouldn't that be the best thing that ever happened to you? He wouldn't pay attention to me. You know but if he you did, it'd be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. You know amazing. it. But you know what's funny? I've actually scraped my own Twitter and analyzed my own Twitter to see what works. Like to see what gets the likes and the retweets. You can do that. Like that's, 
you, you're publicly available. You can just, you can scrape your tweets. You can look at your likes, retweets. You can try to analyze what works and what doesn't. And what I found over time is I have no friggin' idea what works and what doesn't. Like the dumbest tweets will take off, and the ones I work so hard on don't go anywhere. But it's just a, it's a content game, right? Like so, the more you throw out there, I, you would figure I've doing this for like three or four years. I'd figure it out. I probably know less about what makes today than what made three. I mean, like you guys are in a band. Like Matt, when you write a song, do you know if it's going to be a hit or not? No. I exactly. mean, it's it's always hit or miss in that way, and you just. You know, like I don't get the sense that I mean that's the that's the thing about things at the real level, like where they're like the things that people really like sink or swim on their own. That's not something anybody can access automatically. That's mm-hmm. the fun part is to try to play into a boundary where you think if the stars aligned and I do my best, there's a chance that this thing could have its own life and that's really is what it's all about it's like can you get something not because you have a reputation or because you have an authority mm-hmm. or because you have but can you make something that has its own legs and if so there's not a better feeling so think about this this book idea started in october of 2019 so to write the book and get it out you have to catch the zeitgeist in a specific way that makes the book work mm-hmm. and you don't know what the world's going to look like in 18 months or two years you know, you don't know if people are going to give a crap about the nuns in 18 months or not. So you basically have to be, listen, if anyone, you're success, if you talk to someone who's successful and you ask them to tell them your life story, like how they became successful, and they don't use the phrase, and then I got incredibly lucky, they're full of crap. Like, this is all just luck at some point. Now, you can in, in, increase your luck, I think, but you can't make all the luck. You know, like, there's some randomness to your entire career, yeah. whatever it is. And this book might sell, you know, 10 times as many copies as I think it's going to sell, or it might sell half as many, but the factors that cause that to happen are largely going to be outside my control. And that is honestly terrifying. So the best I can do is try as hard as I can, but also keep throwing stuff out there and seeing what sticks. That's really the only content strategy I have right now is just keep throwing more stuff out there and something's going to make, and a lot of stuff's not, but then ride the lightning when something does as far as it'll take you. How does this one inner work as far as like, uh, the, if we hadn't said it clearly enough, the book's called The Nuns. Mm-hmm. Uh, subtitle is Where They Came From, uh, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They're Going. And yep. so how does this fit from when you had the vision for the book to like that, what the landscape is like? Is that Did it shift a lot or does it nail the zeitgeist at the moment? I think it's hit the zeitgeist because I've talked to several reporters at big outlets, like national outlets, about the book, like I've had phone conversations with with reporters at both the Times and the Post, and they said they wanted to pivot to talking about the nuns in 2021 because they're done talking about evangelicals because the Trump era is sort of like waning now, and they want to pivot to something completely different. And they think the nuns are sort of understudied and under understood, and they think that my book sort of brings a new edge to that they've never seen before. Now, if it actually ends up being stories, who knows, right? But I feel like the initial data says like I hit it close enough, right? Like it, it just, it's, it's it, I don't know if it's going to take off, but it seems like the initial plan is good. But like, again, the idea from this book literally came two years ago from a tweet. My most popular tweet ever came out March 19th, 2019, two years ago. Um, and it got 1100 retweets, got retweeted by Sam Harris and basically everybody. Like I was on the front page of Reddit with 30,000 upvotes, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, all were covering the nuns. And I was the guy who like unearthed that. And so I became like, that became my shtick. And I thought, that's my rocket, right? Let's <laughs> ride the rocket as long as it keeps going. 
And apparently it's still going. And the media loves this narrative of social scientist, but also pastor writing a book about the nuns. Like that's catnip for them. And, yeah. and that's something like, so there's this, um, there's a guy named Chris Saka. He's a venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. And he I heard him like talk about like, when people pitch to him, he asked him one question, which is what's your unfair advantage? What's the one thing you do that not a single person on earth can walk in here and say, I can do it as well as they can do it. And for me, my unfair advantage is I'm a quantitative social scientist. So I have all the chops that come with that, but I'm also a pastor who's been in the trenches for 15 years now. How many people can do both those things? That Venn diagram has me in it as far as I can tell. So that's my unfair advantage. And I want to use that to sell books, to advance my career, to get the message out as best I can. And that's kind of what this nun's book is about. Like a pastor and a social scientist writes a book about the nuns. Like to me, that seems pretty, pretty good. And hopefully it catches the zeitgeist, but again, you don't know. And what would it contribute? Like, what are the, what was, what does this contribute? Where do you see this all? Yeah. Like the, the result of the fact that we're becoming mm-hmm. a secular wave, as you put it, it it's yeah. a, the secular wave is upon us. So yeah. in my mind, first of all, you could have made it way scarier if you named it, the secular wave is upon us <laughs> or something like that. Like you, yeah. you know, so I, but I'm just saying really that, that yeah. it, it, there is a scary thing that you're talking about or is it scary or how does it intersect with possible futures here that That's might. That Southern fire yeah. and brimstone yeah. ideal coming Going out. To hell. <laughs> um, yeah. America's no, lost, so, you know. We are lost, <laughs> uh, but not for the reasons that yeah. we're talking about right now. Um, so a, the one thing I talk about me, pastors, like, don't feel bad if you're being in a declining church, cause it's probably not your fault. I want pastors actually feel some sort of like salve, you know, like a balm for them. I want them to really feel that a B, but I also want them to know that this is not all is not lost. So there are three types of nuns. There's atheists, agnostics, and a group called nothing in particular. And no one talks about that third group. And they're 20% of the population. One in five Americans is nothing in particular. It's the same size as white Catholics, a little bit smaller than evangelicals, okay? It's literally one of the largest religious groups in America today, and no one talks about them. When I say nuns, almost everyone thinks of atheists. Atheists are only 6% of the population. Nothing in particular, we're 15% 10 years ago. They're 20% today. They've grown 5% in 10 years, which is insane from like a demography perspective. So here's the thing about them. Over a four-year period of time, 60% 60% of nothing particulars were still nothing in particular four years later. But 20% of them became atheists or agnostics, but then 20% of them went back to a religion. Most of them went back to Christianity, right? So there is a, there's a fertile field to use the Christian terminology, right? There's a fertile field amongst nothing in particulars. They are not as re- reluctant to go back to religion. Like don't waste your time with atheists and agnostics is what I say in the book, because they ain't coming back. They're gone. And they're not going to, you can't argue your way to get them back in church. Focus on this big hunk of people, 20%, that a big chunk of them want to come back to religion, want to come back to faith. Attract them. They're the people who need you the most too, by the way. And they're sitting there waiting, spinning their wheels. And while you're having an apologetics argument with Richard Dawkins, that makes no sense to anybody. Stop that. <laughs> Have you seen the uh, the political landscape calls the, the no particulars? It- to even grow more. It seems like that would be a sign. I don't want to go back because it, because it just feels so partisan and, and you know, that not unchristlike. So the nothing in particular is actually, I think the reason Biden won in 2020. Um, I need to articulate that a little bit better because I don't have the, I don't have the raw data yet. It's coming out at the end of the month, but so they were really strong for Obama in 2008 and they sort of weakened on Obama in 2012. And then in 2016, a majority of nothing in particular voted for Trump over Hillary Clinton. 
Um, but then Biden got back to the Obama 2012 numbers when he won in 2020. I mean, there are very, most religious groups in America don't switch their political, you know, how they vote over time. Like white evangelicals are 76, 78% every time for the Republican, whether it's Romney or Trump or McCain or whoever, they're 77, 78%. This group switched 15% in one election, nothing in particular. And remember, they're 20% of the electorate. So do the math. Like that's 2% of the population right there that switched their vote. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that Biden won is because these people were like, they like Trump, I think, because he was an outsider. And they're outsiders too. They're not connected to society. They like Trump because they're like, in the swamp. I want to make the system work for you. And after four years, you know what they realized? Dude's the swamp. He's exactly what we were all worried about, right? And so now I'm going to go back to the Democrats. I think by default, they're sort of Democrats because they have lower income. So they need like assistance and more government intervention, things like that. So Biden managed to bring them back merely for not being Donald Trump and not being, I think, too far to the left. I think that's what, that was really the, yeah. the secret of Biden winning was being not Trump and not crazy. That that's was the me. argument against Bernie or something more yes. progressive. Yes. Yeah. That yes. Got I think that swing back. No one wants to believe me. I think Biden was the perfect <laughs> candidate. I really honest to God do because he's not, you know, like, so there's my, my favorite anecdote is they had that, that rally outside Tulsa. Uh, Trump didn't have a rally for a long time because of COVID. Then they had a rally in Tulsa. Yeah. There was a vendor outside the, the stadium and they went, CNN went up to him asking like, what's selling? He goes, oh, Trump stuff, obviously. Anti-Hillary stuff selling like crazy. He goes, you know, what's not selling anti-Biden stuff. Can't sell it. Doesn't work. No matter what I put on the t-shirts, no one wants to buy him because Biden's hard to hate. He's just hard to hate. I mean, wow. Republicans have a hard time even now hating Joe Biden like they hated Hillary Clinton because she's a woman and Barack Obama because he's black. I think it's easy to make fun of him. They don't hate but him. Not harder easy to, to hate, hate him, him necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. He almost get, has a puppy enough quality to not hate. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I yeah. think that was the secret. Democrats just needed to, they didn't need to try to win. They just didn't need to try to lose. You can't it, believe like, he's actually Satan as easily. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like he yeah. goes to church, he goes to mass every Sunday. He lost his wife and his, you know, his daughter in the car wreck. He lost his son with the cancer. Like dude, dude is authentic. It's hard to hate him because he talks so authentically about his faith and his life. He was, I mean, I wish he wasn't 70, whatever, 77 years old. Like that's not good. <laughs> But beyond that, dude was a pretty good choice compared to the rest of the field. And I think the Democrats basically did what they had to do, to, you know, to win the election in 2020. And by the way, yeah. they, you know what their policy has been since Biden took presidency? Pass popular crap. Like, that's literally their strategy right now. Pass popular bills. And they've been doing it. Yeah. And I think that to me, like, governing's not that hard. Find out what people want and give it to them. And that's exactly what the Democrats have done in the last 55 days. And I think, I mean, it's early, obviously, but they're definitely in a good position now electorally in the future. Yeah. But some of my family uh, did say that uh, we will be having to take the mark of the beast pretty soon because he's president. <laughs> I, I did an interview on Vice about that very thing. You did? Yeah, 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 yeah. About the vaccine being the mark of the beast and like what that oh, logic yeah, comes yeah. from. And so I explained all, like, think, but if you think about it, it's actually weirdly logical. So the government creates COVID in a lab, right? Yeah. They release it. And then what do they do? They shut down the churches because the only counterbalance to the government in America is the church. So if you shut down the church, guess who gets all the power? The government. And then magically, mystically, for the first time in history, we came up with a vaccine in like nine months. Magical, Right. So they're going to use that vaccine to then microchip you so that you have the mark of the beast. 
it's crazy, but at some level it actually makes like logical yeah. sense. Like yeah. it all falls in place, right? Most conspiracy theories actually have some logic in them. It's just the first leap is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that about flat earthers. Like I watched a documentary that tries to just break down what flat earthers actually believe and how they get to that conclusion. And there are points where I was like, I guess I can kind of see it actually. Like obviously in the end, I arrived at the conclusion that obviously the earth is not flat, but I can see where people get tripped up along the way and start to think, actually, I, I can see that, you know? <laughs> Like with the moon landing, there's some Mm -hmm. weird videos of like that it was like some of the stuff was maybe set up, just took care. I I think that they went, but some of the, 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 there is some, like you said, a little hint of truth here or there that you could go, Mm -hmm. well, even though it feels absurd, Mm -hmm. I I could see that. I I mean, I guess that's exactly going back to what we're talking about, like with Fox News too. They just find a hint of the truth and then they can just Mm -hmm. build off of that into this big story. Well, think that's what Q is though, right? Like Q is that thing. Right. Where it makes you feel like you're part of something. Everything makes Mm -hmm. sense that Donald Trump was the savior, yada, yada, yada. Once you get into that world, it's like, you know what? The thing about evangelicalism, I am definitely evangelical sympathetic because I miss that mentality because the entire world made sense when I was an evangelical. Like I knew what was good. You know what I mean? I miss that warm embrace of having the T-shirts and the music and the concerts and the conference and, and that culture. Like I miss that so incredibly much. And I get why people become part of QAnon because they want that sense of community. Like, I think we, 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 we demonize these people because they are dangerous. Let's not, you know, disregard that piece, but they're searching for something and they're getting it through these conspiracy theories. And it's a lot harder to shake that because it's not just a belief thing. It's also a social sense of belonging to a bigger purpose. And I think that is, is way more harder to rip those cords than it is trying to convince them that Q is all fake. We just we're not equipped to do a good job of, of deprogramming these people because we never had to before. Yeah, yeah, I th- I feel that too. How do you think that they? Uh, how do you think that the nuns and just people leaving the church is going to affect the average evangelical themselves though? Like, how will they? What will they notice? In time? The, the, they are you know evangelicals are very good at what I call boundary maintenance, which is the idea of like that we're us and them. You know, I talked about this in my sermon actually this week about how like Christianity is obsessed with this idea called dualism, like good and bad, like body and soul. You know, like Paul talks about that a lot in the epistles. And I don't even think that's a biblical idea, by the way. Like the Old Testament, it's not that way. Your body and your soul are one thing. So evangelicals are very like they're trained to think of the world like in, in, in binary thinking. Right. And as the nuns get bigger, there's going to be a lot more of us versus them. And they're going to be a lot more camping, right? So one side and the other side. The thing that evangelicals forget is to be an evangelical is to want to try to evangelize people into the faith. But the further you get away from the world, to use an evangelical term, the harder it becomes to evangelize those people. So what I think is evangelicals are going to be a a smaller group of America, but they're going to be more committed than ever. And there's actually data that backs this up, by the way. Evangelicals are more literalist today. They attend church more frequently today because it's like, if you're going to be an evangelical, you got to really be one because of all yeah. the baggage that goes along with it. So smaller, more walled off, but way more devout in 20 or 30 years than they are today. While the rest of America is going to be over on the nun side, big hunks of nothing in particular, but also atheists and agnostics, and very few moderate people in the middle, very few mainline Protestants, very few moderate Catholics. It's going to be one or the other. 
So that means then that you have two possible off-ramps for those shrinking ones because when they shrink, the same as Colts, it's the more true believies that stay versus the on-the-fencers. So it only so, can go one way. But you can go Amish, like you get smaller, <laughs> and then you stay to yourself and you have your thing, or you could become more radicalized. So we might see some of both of that. So there's, this, there's actually literature that says that women who are in fundamentalist churches— are actually more conservative theologically than the men are, which is crazy. If, if like you just think about it superficially, right? Because it's like you believe in a Bible that says that you are worth less than a man, right? Like that you are having yeah. second class citizenship. But what they do is because they don't have access to power, they actually try to overcompensate by being super theologically, you know, conservative and have a lot of fervor for that very conservative belief as a way to validate their position in that community. So odd things happen in these groups that you would not suspect happening because they keep trying. Once you're in that group, you try to be the most devout, the most, you know, the most right. committed. Mm -hmm. And you'll do that in crazy ways that actually make you more likely to never leave that group. So it also becomes like a self-reinforcing cycle that keeps people in those groups and there's yeah. no out. There's no way to get out because you're psychologically and socially walled off. Yeah. There's no other option. In, in Trump, fairness, Trump that, went after a lot of those women too, right? That was like yes. Trump, that, Trump tried to yeah. really rally that that fan base. He, but the, you know, he he's a misogynist. Trump is. I mean, the way he speaks right. about women. You know, just today, um, mm -hmm. Biden was going to nominate two women to be four star generals. They were going to be nominated when Trump was president, but they were worried that he would not pr uh, approve their nomination because they were women. Like that's literally the line that was on the news was they held their nominations back till Biden became president so that they would actually get confirmed their nomination as four-star generals. Women love that. Like some women love to be told they're, they're less than. Like they they like the patriarchy. It works well for them. You know, obviously they that- They hold a high power right. status in their in, in a way that works for them. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. That's exactly, it works for them, even though in, in the grand scheme of things, they are subservient. They still mm -hmm. like that position they're in, in that community. You know, it's like the rules that apply to you don't apply to me. I feel like that's the way a lot of evangelicals think about the, the world. Like you think I'm being, you know, mm -hmm. subservient, I'm being equal or I'm, you know, I'm doing my godly role and they can kind of psychologically solve these problems themselves when really it doesn't make any sense. In fairness, like though, create power for yourself in a way. Yeah, ex exactly. That's exactly right. Do you think the, um, is there an analog to this? Oh, uh, like the other side, for instance, like, I mean, we, you have, you have woke groups becoming uh, further fractured and smaller, more radicalized too, right? Mm -hmm. No, I think like wokeism, it's not a religion, but it definitely trends toward dogma. Like and where yet, you believe that, certain things. So dogma is a great word to hang it on. Do you mm -hmm. think these people that are nuns don't necessarily show up as religious if they're in another dogma system, a woke, wokeist dogma system or whatever? So I think they, like, they don't show up as religious, but they, all they yeah. do is trade. I think atheists do have dogma. And I think for by and large, it's like woke liberalism, like especially like social liberalism, like on things like, you know, gay, gay issues, uh, transgender issues, racial issues, especially like things like economic justice and things like that. Like they're definitely like, you have to believe certain things, right? Like poverty is violence. I think it's like, a, it's like a tenant of the woke side of like atheists, for instance, the nothing in particulars have absolutely no dogma beyond we don't trust anybody. Mm. Like that is their like, can, and here's the evidence of that 44% of atheists have a four-year college degree, 44%. It's these third highest behind Jews and Hindus, Jews, Hindus, atheists. Okay. That's the top three. Nothing in particular, 19% have a four-year college degree. They're literally the least educated religious group in America today. 
right? So to me, they're the group who try to go to college and then they had a, a mean professor or a bad roommate or a bad administrator and could not figure out bureaucracy. So they sort of rejected all these social institutions, right? So they don't go to church. They didn't go to college. Uh, 60% of them make $50,000 a year or less as a household. So a lot of them live in poverty. The system does not work for them. So their dogma is we don't trust anybody. And by the way, nothing in particular are just as likely to express vaccine hesitancy as white evangelicals are. And no one talks about that because they're a group who doesn't trust science either because they always were locked out of all these things. This is a serious problem. Hmm. Are they apathetic? Yes, they're apathetic and they're almost like resigned to their fate. I think a lot of them are like, they just feel like defeated, left out, left behind, locked out. You know, they're not part of social life in any way, educationally, income wise, Um, you know, in terms of going to church, they don't do that either. So they're just floating. Right. So when you like see these people who like get radicalized on YouTube, these are the kind of people that I think are nothing in particulars because they don't have anybody in their life that says, whoa, dude, like that guy's crazy. Don't follow that guy. They have no, like, they have no guiding principles. Like I think atheists and agnostics do have guiding principles. Nothing in particulars don't like they're just floating in social and political space, which in some ways is absolutely terrifying to me. Oh yeah. Especially today. I mean, at this time of, I mean, which means best, they could be radicalized despair. too, because they the highest bidder, the most yeah. entertaining, or the whatever that catches their eye or something, they could just go to that group, right? Without even yeah, necessarily believing in it. Or as much. so, there's this podcast called Rabbit Hole. The New York Times did the very first episode was about this guy who was like he dropped out of college. He was like a Dairy Queen manager, like in a small town, and he ended up being a far right guy because of YouTube videos. And then a year later, he was a far left Democratic socialist because of YouTube videos. Like he literally pulled all the way across the political spectrum because the algo did it. Like the yeah, it's just wow. So that's a whole quality. Like like you know you know when I was young, we used to make fun of people for being gullible. Like on the simple Mm -hmm. level, say gullible is written on the ceiling or something. But Mm -hmm. there are people now who are just intoxicated by the algorithm at a very thin way. Like it's Mm -hmm. maybe it's not gullible, but it's a different human quality of able to be persuaded. It's seductive. The the algorithm is seductive, right? Because it doesn't hit you like right. It doesn't try to convince you all at once. It just chips away, chips away, chips away at you. And before you know it, you believe in some stuff that's like legitimately crazy. And you never even realized you got there. So the apathetic, depressed is a defense mechanism against things that they don't trust. At least you can shut down and kind of like. That's a that's a defense that I mean, yes, evolutionarily. It's a good facade, though, right? Like, I don't care. I don't care about this. I don't care about that. When really deeply they're hurting, they're lonely, they're depressed, they're tired, they're poor, right? Economically, they're in, they're struggling. Their whole life's been a struggle. These are the kind of people I think that used to be factory workers 30 years ago, then the factory moved away, right? Globalization screwed them over and they've got really nothing going on in their lives and they're looking for something, but they're right. at the same time, they're looking for nothing. They can't find what they're looking for because there's no magic you know, parachute that's going to get them out of the situation they're in. They're stuck. And that's big because that all those people were trapped inside their house with just the internet for the last year. <laughs> yeah, oh my no, gosh. No. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like no. what is that? Good? I mean, that is just. Uh, I mean, like, like you said, they could be radicalized or whatever. They're, they're, you know, whichever leaning, whatever catches their eye or whatever. But that's just mm-hmm. really crazy. They for a year, year and a half, they've just been out there doing what? And what is that going to? I mean, this that's a big population of people. 
Twenty and, percent. Yeah. And th- those those exact nuns aren't going to read your book. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? they're not. And they they are not going to get your book. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem is people don't realize you're in the trap until you're you know you someone shows you you're in the trap right like there's. Yeah. There's this old political science proverb, like two fish are swimming along, talking about their day. And an old fish comes next to him and goes, hey, guys, how's the water? And then he swims away. And the one fish looks at the fish and goes, what the hell is water? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. That's, like, you don't realize the soup that you're swimming in until someone points out the soup that you're swimming in is weird. Right. And if you're, the algo never tells you that. And they're like, whoa, dude, you're getting a little radical here. Like, back up. It never says that. You know, like, there's no sober second thought. And if you don't have a pastor or a boss or a parent or someone in your life saying, hey, man, like, you're kind of getting a little weird here. Like, things go in a weird direction. And so things like, you know, the incel community, I think about those guys a lot. Like, you know, they're really mad because they're involuntarily celibate. They can't find a woman. It's like a bunch of really pissed off, like, dudes in their 20s who can't get laid, basically. And they like, Uh really angry about it towards women, especially. I think that's a lot of tied up in these groups who just feel like no one cares about them and they just feel disinfected and disenchanted and mm-hmm. nothing good comes out of it. Yep. Yep. I think that's right. I guess there's times in history and other precedents for this. Do you, have, do you have any off the top of your head? I mean, not. so it's hard to know what America was like 50 years ago. Cause we don't have surveys that go back 50 years, but we do know that people were more social just as a general rule. Cause you didn't have streaming. You didn't have YouTube. You didn't have Spotify. You didn't have podcasts. Right. So you, if you wanted any sort of interaction, you had to go out and do stuff. That book I was talking about Robert Putnam's bowling alone. The title comes from the fact that people used to bowl in bowling leagues and now people bowl alone, right? Bowling leagues used to be a big deal in America, like 50, 60 years ago. Yep. Now hardly anyone uses them. Like people were, definitely more social 40 or 50 years ago, which I think, you know, keeps you from being radicalized by just being around different people. I don't think we've ever been at a time in human history where we've been so isolated with so much information at our fingertips at the same time. And honestly, that's a deadly combination. Yeah. So it's really crappy time for the church to fail everybody, you assholes. You know, <laughs> well, like, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, like, it seems like that I, sucks that, right? You know, there's good things there's good things about church. I mean, I, that's what I'm It's obviously that that's true. It's like, it feels like they've been pushed into even driving people away in re, or like you said, maybe evangelicalism aid at all. But you know, this just the plain old part about church country club Christians is like, at least that was that held stuff together. It might not have been, you know, theologically sound as Calvinism. It didn't offer as much, but you know, it held some, some cities and towns and States together. I, I think that we forget, and this made the social science to me, but like church is a social organization that just so happens to have like a theological component to it. And churches like try to de-emphasize the social piece. And I'm like, don't do that. Like yeah, have no. dinners, have bowling night, have just like game night, like get your kids together with other kids in the church, like just yeah. social stuff. And then, you know, like if the theological thing works for you, cool. But like, we need to be a social service community as much as we are anything else. And churches need to stop making things so darn spiritual all the time. Like sometimes, that's what evangelical did when you say eight, they hyped it up to a level yes. that, where yes. the other old way was just too dull. Yes. They said like, oh, this isn't a social club. This is about going to heaven or hell. Yeah. So like, the stakes are high. And I want to be like, listen, lower the stakes a little bit, kids. <laughs> like it's okay to just go to church and hang out. Cause you know what? Most people go to church for the wrong reasons initially, and then end up going for the right reasons in the long run. Right. So it's okay to come for the wrong reasons. Like if you want to just hang out with your friends, go hang out with your friends. It's totally fine. Like, I think we, we try to make it. So we talk about like the vertical versus horizontal orientation. The vertical is like you and God. That's the one we emphasize too much. The horizontal is you and other people. 
Like churches have a big horizontal component that we just don't talk about very much. And I think pastors need to emphasize that more. Like, listen, come hang out. You know what? We should welcome people to come an hour before church and say an hour after church or use the building to do a birthday party, right? Little stuff like that can change everything mm-hmm. for a community and give you a sense of purpose and belonging. I think churches feel like they have to preach the gospel all the time. Just be friends with people for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ryan. This yeah, is there's great. a, the, oh, go ahead. If we're wrapping up, I'll save my no, story for later. Go for it. No. <laughs> there's a church down the road from me who, um, if you're familiar with Pokemon Go, it's it's got a huge walking trail and all of it's like Pokestops, right? And so a lot of people in the nearby neighborhoods like flock to this church parking lot and especially when it first came out which it's been it's been a hot minute but even still that's where a lot of people go to play but rather than i guess welcoming people into the community inviting them in the building they completely roped off the parking lot where people like couldn't even go in there anymore Mm -hmm. and that was like one of the things that i I one of the opinions I had when it first came out was this is a perfect opportunity for you to welcome people into your community and your congregation. And instead, you're being the old guy who sits and screams, get off my lawn right now. Right. That's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a yeah, that's what they did. The same thing of. with skateboarding, like the yeah. churches, they'd have a parking yeah. lot. And you couldn't go skateboarding. I was like, what in the world are you doing? These yeah. are the people mm-hmm. it, what, they can only come in in a certain way. With uh, you know, only by your rules, and then that's just going to yeah, that's going to turn everybody. Or they off. like like Ryan said, they have to come in for the right reasons, and if they don't, we don't want them in at all. Mm-hmm. Rather right. than sure, they can come in if they just want to play Pokemon, but eventually they're going to hear what we're saying and stick around for the right reasons. You know. Yeah, I got one story for you that's at the end of the book about my church, my little church of thirty people. We decided we wanted to feed hungry kids in our community with little brown bags of uh, little sacks of food for the weekend. It goes to school, the kids pick it up, the poor kids in the community. We have a lot of poverty in our community. We've been doing that for a long time, almost 10 years now. We actually spend $10,000 a year on this program. Our entire budget's 40K. We spend 25% of our budget just on this because we think it's so important to what we do. We had one time, little boy, we put a little little, uh, card in the sack that says, we're First Baptist Church. We love you. We don't know you, but we love you. God loves you too. If you ever need, need anything, just call us and we'll try to help you. Well, this grandma called us on a Friday and said, you know, my grandson, I'm, I'm keeping him because his mom, you know, has got legal problems and he doesn't have a coat and it's getting cold. Do you guys have any coats? And we were having a rummage sale that weekend, that Saturday. So we had a full fellowship hall full of clothes and we invited that kid in and his, his grandma and they took two, three sacks of clothes out of that, out of that fellowship hall. And you know what? I'll never see that kid again. But I know when he talks about faith and talks about what church did, I know he's going to remember that time that a church who did not know who he was gave him something freely because that is what we're supposed to do, Yeah. right? With no yeah. conditions and no strings attached. We didn't ask his name. We didn't try to get a contact card. We never followed up. But his life was changed in some small infinitesimal way because of the goodness and kindness that we provided. Like, you know, like that's the point, right? Like it's not yeah. about saving souls. It's somebody just changing the culture and saying church is a net positive for you and your community changes everything. And we don't have to proselytize all the time. And if he becomes, you know, an evangelist, good. I'll tell that story even better if he does, but I'm still going to tell it because that kid still has a positive you know, view of church because of that one little simple thing we did because we cared about him. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that speaks super powerfully because he experienced church without the sermon or the offering plate or the, this class that you go to or anything like he just got to receive 
And so, mm-hmm. of course, that would that, that would wake you up. So, all right, when can uh, the name of the book is the Nuns? When where when and where can people get it? Uh, you can get on where any book is sold, Amazon or one buys from. That's cool. Like I still get the same royalty no matter where you buy it from. So buy it from Amazon. It sh- it's already shipping now. If you buy it right now, it'll ship to you. You can buy the ebook on Amazon. Um, an audio book is coming out. Nice. <laughs> Did you read it? I know they would not let me read it. They really? Let you? <laughs> I wish I, you would have done great at it. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would probably like editorialize too much at the end. <laughs> this graph was stupid. Like I, I can't screw that graph up so bad. Now's your chance to put in all that shit you forgot. <laughs> yeah. Like I do. Like I'm like, Oh God, why did I not think about that? Like I had a graph. I was like, Oh, that's such a good graph. You know? So, um, audiobooks coming out. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Like we just talked about a bunch at Ryan Burge, B U R G E. Uh, my website is ryanburge.net. I have like all my working papers, like all the stuff I've published ac- academically is on there. Screw the publishers. I put up there for free. You don't have to like pay to like read my stuff. You can just download it. I don't care at this point. Um, and you know, if you want me to come talk at your thing, like that's become a thing now. I'm, I'm, I got my first shot last week. So I'm almost, you know, I'm, I'm COVID, I'll be COVID vaccinated by the middle of April. So I'm going to get the heck out the of it. Mark has almost taken over. So, yeah. oh my gosh, the beast is all over me right now. <laughs> um, so if you want me to come speak to your church group, your conference, your college, your seminary, I don't care. I just want out of this stinking house. I want to go talk to people about the book and I want to try to help them understand the world they live in. So please contact me. I'd be happy to come talk. We'll have you when we get a conference up and, and out, but no matter what happens between now and then, you better not send me to no damn agent or anything. I don't get, no, I, I nego- no, listen, I negotiated my book contract, both book contracts myself, no agent. I'm not going to get a booking agent. You're going to just talk to me because whoever it is is not going to be worth 15%. I can negotiate myself for there goodness go. sakes. Come on. I mean, no middlemen. I am the, I'm yep. just I'm I'm a human being. I don't have an entourage. Yet. Yet. Hopefully never. They're expensive. Eventually it'll be a man. Ryan Carlson. (laughs) I've watched VH1 behind the music enough to know that that posses get you in trouble. And I don't want to get in trouble. So just me. They're gonna have a show like Hannity and Combs, you know? It'll be it'll be Carlson and Burge. (laughs) <laughs> Whatever oh, happened to Combs? That's true. I I forgot about Combs. He, 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 he died. He died. Yeah, oh, like God. a couple years ago, he did. Yeah, Alan Combs died. Yeah, he had Hannity had the show. And you know why they got him off the show? Because all the conservatives said we don't like to have that liberal guy on there. Can we get him off there? So that's he how was he just there to get kind of get beat up on though. Yeah, he got paid a lot of money to get the crap beat out of him. You know, it's not all bad. I guess now he's dead. God. Now he's dead. Well, you know. <sighs> All right, uh, well, Ryan. Shit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Combs, everybody. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. We we appreciate your time, man. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.